continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hey. How's it going, team? Hey. <laughs> we're, all, we're all good. Tonight, we have a very special episode here at the Pediatric Hospital Medicine Conference 2021. Uh, we've gotten to see some amazing talks today and bring on some of the outstanding speakers from the conference. I'm Dr. Justin Burke. I am joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our outstanding producer, Dr. Jessica Hain. Jess, say hi. Hey, everyone. Our guests tonight are Dr. Rhonda Echelanu and Dr. John Morrison, here to discuss the top articles in pediatric hospital medicine this year, the top 10-ish articles, as we are calling it. Um, but before we dive into this literature, let's first remind you about the show. Chris, what do we do? We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Tonight, we have a fantastic conversation with our guests, Dr. Rhonda Echelanu and Dr. John Morrison. So Dr. Echelanu is the Vice Chair for Education and the Co-Director of Leadership, Engagement, Advocacy, and Diversity Program in the Department of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore. She's an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and an attending physician in the Division of Hospital Medicine. West Philadelphia born and raised, she earned her medical degree from the NCP Hahnemann School of Medicine, which is now Drexel University College of Medicine. She subsequently completed her residency and chief residency at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She joined Einstein and the CHAM in June 2017 after being at the NYU Langone Medical Center for 12 years where she served as the residency program director and then the associate dean for diversity and academic affairs. Dr. Jean Morrison is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a pediatric hospice at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida. Dr. Morrison obtained his medical degree and his doctorate of philosophy in pathology and microbiology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He then completed pediatric residency and a fellowship in pediatric hospital medicine at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Morrison is a clinical and translational scientist with a particular interest in tracheostomy-associated respiratory infections, antibiotic-resistant mechanisms, biomarker diversity, and predictive modeling of recurrent respiratory infections. That's right. In this episode, Dr. Echelanu and Dr. Morrison walk us through some of the top 12 articles of the year, including brew risk factors, hyperbilirubinemia follow-up, miss-C treatment, child restraints, disparities in academic medicine, and a ton more pearls as we go through the top 12, top 10 pediatric hospital medicine articles of the past year. Let's get to it. Everyone, thank you for joining. We're, we have Dr. Achilonu and Dr. Morrison. Uh, thank you for coming on to the show. We really appreciate you taking the time with us. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Thanks so much for having us. We're super excited to be Thanks here. Thanks for having us. So we like to start by getting to know you a little bit better and having our listeners get to know who the experts we're bringing on. Can I have you each give just kind of a one-liner to describe yourself and maybe something you do outside of medicine? Rhonda, why don't we start with you? 
Sure. So I like to think of myself as a righteously raging mom of three children. I'm a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister, and I like to play a foodie on the side. So I love to eat everything in sight. Amazing. Uh, And John, how about yourself? Sure. My one liner. Well, I'd like to think of myself as having a history of being married and still currently (laughs) married, a father of three lovely kids. And uh, in terms of everything that we enjoy to do down here, we're everything Florida. So beach going, Disney World, when it's safe to do so, um, pretty much anything outside. Do you have a favorite Disney character? I do, believe it or not. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a fan of the uh, old school Mickey Mouse. I think he can't go better than, than Walt's original character. It's classic. Awesome. So one of my favorite questions, uh, we'll start with you, Rhonda. What is a book that you think every physician should read? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, So I'm going to cheat and say two because I never can decide if that's okay. Um, I fell in love with the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande just because it was the simplicity of it I thought was amazing. I was like, wait, everything can be solved with a checklist? And I'm one of those people who as an intern used to make boxes. And even after I'd already done the task, I would make a box just so I could check it off. So I'm really big into checklists. So I really like that one. I'm also a really big fan of medical apartheid. I think it's a really great history of all the things related to our history of medicine. And I think if you're becoming a physician, I think it's a really great history lesson that we probably didn't get in medical school. So it's great as we go out to practice medicine. What about you, John? You know, I think every physician should probably read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's one of my favorite books that explains sort of the psychology behind you know, how we think and the shortcuts we can take and the risks when we do take those shortcuts. And, and as a physician, I think so much of what we do really is just thinking and recognizing where the faults may lie with our thought processes. Great suggestions. Great recommendation. Now, I heard one thing about the thinking fast and slow is the fact that you, ha- you can recognize you're thinking fast and slow, but you can't force yourself to think fast or slow. Is that correct? Correct. Absolutely correct. Great quick follow-up question, Chris. Nice. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say, I, I'm not sure I figured it out. Uh, any, <laughs> you described it. <laughs> um, well, this is great. We have a lot of articles to go over, so I'd love to just kind of dive into some content. And I think, first of all, we have to ask, given everything that's been happening in medicine in the past year, when you're evaluating, looking for the top 10 articles in the year, how did you choose these 12 articles? Take it away, John. Well, that's a tough one. You know, I think the the hard part about top 10 every year is really just finding the articles that represent pediatric hospital medicine as a field. And that is difficult because we are a very diverse group in terms of interest in clinical practice. And then you throw in the mix of, you know, certainly the COVID-19 pandemic and the excellent research that's been ongoing since the start of this. And, you know, even then, what do you choose that's mostly relevant to hospitalists? And so I think this year we tried to strike a balance between still sticking true to us as a field and highlighting several different realms within hospital medicine, but then also acknowledging that we do have to bring up the elephant in the room, which is COVID-19, and finding the articles that really you know, speak to us as providers, acknowledging that so much of the evidence, particularly in children, is still very new. I would imagine it was not an easy task to narrow down these, these articles. No, def- definitely not. Yeah. It, was a, it was a lot of work, but we learned a lot in the process as well. Awesome. Well, like Justin said, we have a ton to cover um, tonight. So I think why don't we just get started and dig into the articles? Um, I do want to remind everyone that the links to all the articles will be included in our show notes. So let's get started with an article by Dr. Jessica Moriarty and her colleagues about trainee supervision and the impact of independent rounds on medical students, residents, and faculty. So for me, as a new pediatric hospitalist, uh, I was really excited about this article. Um, I am always trying to find 
balance between supervision and autonomy for my trainees and and being only one year out, I remember what it was like to be to be a trainee and just feel like you wanted to, you know, be independent and make make those medical decisions on your own, but also being a little a little nervous about it. So I think just my first question is, can you tell us what they mean um, in this article by independent rounds? Absolutely. So what they meant by independent rounding is that they actually had the senior residents round independently with the medical students and the interns without the attending present. They did it once or twice a week, depending on the resident and the attending schedules. But they made sure that there was a very extensive workflow and checklist that the senior residents had to do to make sure that the senior residents were prepared to do the independent rounding. And then after they did the independent rounding, um, the researchers, it seemed, held a, a focus group for the trainees and faculty. Uh, can you just talk us through some of the themes that emerged from these focus groups? Absolutely. And I want to make a quick note about the focus groups because I th- we thought this was a really cool thing, is they actually made sure that the focus groups were split up by the groups of the, tr- of the learners so that there was a group for medical students and a group for interns. And that was to provide some psychological safety because you could imagine and we all could imagine, you know, a medical student might not really say what they want to say if there's the big time attending is sitting in the room <laughs> with them. Um, and so they did that. So they got really honest feedback. So um, the themes, the first one, which we pulled out separately, was that no significant patient safety events happen. And I think that's really important because sometimes we worry when we let our trainees go on their own, we want to make sure that, that nothing patient safety related is going to happen. The other ones are really, I think, fascinating for somebody interested in education. And Jess, I'm like you, I'm like a passionate about this education stuff. The trainees really felt that there was such a positive contribution to their development. They felt like they were incredibly uh, took ownership of education. They looked up literature more often. They really thought about patient care and like running rounds in a really meaningful way. So they thought that was amazing. And they really felt they had an increased motivation to take the ownership of that. The faculty were actually a little bit concerned about the fact that they didn't have as many opportunities to teach. Because, right, if they're not there, then they can't teach and they can't give feedback because they can't see what's going on. So they didn't love that. But interestingly enough, the learners said things like it was a unique opportunity for them to learn because they actually didn't feel the pressure of the attending being there. So the medical students felt more comfortable speaking up. The senior residents felt more comfortable giving uh, different literature and stuff that they might not have said if the attending was there. So it was this interesting balance. And then one of the ultimate themes that they came out with that John and I thought was really cool was the overall idea of satisfaction. The trainees were really satisfied. They were like, this is fantastic. It's given them the autonomy that they really wanted. They felt ownership. They felt motivated. But the faculty actually said it took away something from them that they love to do. They chose to be in academic medicine to teach and to round and to give feedback. And when you don't let them do that, then they actually weren't as satisfied. So there was a little bit of tension that the authors found. That's a great summary. Um, and I have to ask both Rhonda and John, have you, have you tried this with your teams before? So I have tried this. Um, We actually do do something at our hospital where we do pretending rounds. And we actually do let our senior, our second or third year resident round by themselves. And it was so funny having read this article after having done this because the exact things that they came up with, I could totally see. I get bummed out because I'm like, wait, I wasn't there. I didn't get a chance to like see what you guys did. The interns will say, oh, the senior resident was amazing. I was like, were they? I didn't see it. So I I totally could resonate. Everything, all these themes totally (laughs) resonated with me. 
That's awesome. What a great problem to have as far as fighting over quality teaching time. Um, sorry, John, what were you going to say? Uh, yeah, so I was just going to say that, you know, we, we also have done the same thing. And I agree with Ron and that I'm in the camp of I love to teach. And so when I can't be there at the bedside. But the other thing I figured out, though, is that I also sometimes miss being the point of contact as the doctor at the bedside. And so when you're behind the layer of medical student and intern and third and senior resident, Sometimes when I get to round independently myself, I get to have a conversation and that sort of rejuvenates me for the rest of the week. And I think makes maybe feeling left out of the teaching well worth it. Well, great. I think I'm going to have to try this. <laughs> so I wonder if maybe a hybrid model. A little of both. Yeah, that would be great. So the next article I, I found really interesting because, you know, recently I, I just came back uh, precepting from our MedPeds clinic. And, you know, we often have these patients who are, you know, just the hospital follow-up. And especially with something like bronchiolitis, like, oh, that's great. It'll be an easy one. There's not going to be much to do. You know they're likely going to be better. And this, this article actually sort of enlightens me that it makes a lot of sense. And also, you know, recently there was that pediatric hospital medicine has that, that recent Choosing Wisely campaign. And I think on one of the recommendations was basically not to mandate like routine post-discharge follow-up for acute self-limiting conditions in whom continued improvement is expected. So I thought this really sort of spoke to that. Do you want to explain a little bit about this article? Absolutely. So this was also one of our favorite articles, because exactly like you said, Chris, I'm really interested in making sure that we limit the amount of follow-up that we do unnecessarily. So in this particular article, what the authors did is it was a non-inferiority randomized control trial. So basically, they were just trying to find out, is it inferior for them to not schedule a follow-up appointment? And so they looked at kids under two years old, and they all had a diagnosis of bronchiolitis. And their key outcome, because there's a lot of things you could figure out whether or not in terms of follow-up as to what should you, what should your outcome be. Their outcome was parental anxiety, because that's a big one, right? For kids, when you send them home with bronchiolitis, and we say this all the time, um, and now we're seeing an increased number of patients with RSV, I say, how comfortable is the family with going home? Because if they're not comfortable, they're going to bring that kid back. And I always tell families, I'm, I'm not going to make your child perfect by the time they leave. They're still going to cough. They're still going to have a runny nose. They might still have a couple of retractions, but they're safe enough to go home. And if they're not comfortable, they are going to come back. So this particular study, the authors use the hospital um, anxiety and depression scale called HAZ. And so it's an, they use the anxiety part of the scale to figure out how anxious were the families. And so they followed them and they followed the seven-day parental anxiety scale. And they tried to see whether or not um, the groups that were randomized for to follow up within four days after discharge versus those that were scheduled for PRN. Come back if you need to, if the symptoms are worsening or not, then come back if you want to. And they found that in whatever group, either group that they looked at, that the anxiety score was the same. So what they ended up saying is that post-hospitalization follow-up for bronchiolitis actually doesn't seem to, to be inferior. You don't have to necessarily schedule an appointment. And some key things that we pulled out from the article that we thought was interesting is that we wanted to make sure that they didn't only like send the kids for follow-up for the kids who have been on high flow or on BiPAP, like the sicker kids, were those the ones in certain groups? And they really did a great job of actually matching the groups up. So both groups were pretty equal. So which are the types of groups that you would expect to, to have follow-up, especially for you in your own practice? So that's a great question. Um, I actually I actually was, the why, reason why I was so excited to see that they put the high flow and the kids with BiPAP and the kids who've had a history of wheezing in the equal groups was that's the group that I might've thought like, oh, I definitely want to see them. Like I want to make sure I see these kids that were in the PICU or something like that. And they didn't do that. Like they, they did that. They put them in the same groups, but they didn't show that the anxiety was higher. 
more importantly, they actually wanted to find out about readmission rates, right? Because I think that's the other thing we worry about. If I send this kid home, I don't know how they're doing. I don't have somebody following up with them. Are they just going to show back up in the ED? And they also did not show us a statistically significant difference in kids who were readmitted. So it really reassured me that I can go with that sense of, you know what? I feel like you're safe enough to go home. You can go home. And if you feel the need to come back, that's okay. But we don't have to schedule you for that appointment. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for for bringing that. And that that was the bronchiolitis follow-up intervention trial by Dr. Eric Kuhn and colleagues, also known as the benefit trial. Great title. Nailed it. But yeah, if they need help, they'll come back. Just send them home. They'll be all right. That's right. I thought that was a, a very interesting article. Great study. And moving on to our, our next article that we wanted to highlight is focused on bruise, brief resolved unexplained events. And so there was an article that came out in pediatrics, risk factors and outcomes after a brief resolved unexplained event, a multi-center study that really tried to look at some of the criteria for bruise. And so can you tell us a little bit more about this study that was teeter at all, looking at the risk factors and outcomes after a brew or after a brie, a brief resolved explained event, a new terminology that I plan to use very frequently. Absolutely. So this was a pretty neat study that followed up on the initial release of the 2016 AAP guidelines on what to do for a brew. And so historically, I didn't think I would find myself talking about this already uh, so early in my career. But I remember when we used to call these events apparent life-threatening events or alties, right? And so (laughs) that would scare providers. It would scare parents. And so luckily, Dr. Teeter and his colleagues released this new guideline that would stratify, one, we came up with this new name in terms of brief resolved unexplained events, but two, it actually helped us classify which children are at least low risk for having any type of underlying serious condition. The problem is that once that was released, there wasn't a lot of great data that actually looked at you know, are these higher risk factors, not necessarily high risk, but higher risk factors actually associated with the outcome of interest, which is finding a child who had an underlying uh, diagnosis. And so this study was a, a multi-center study. Uh, it was a retrospective cohort in design and eventually looked at um, children who presented to the emergency department or those that were ultimately hospitalized with a diagnosis initially of brew. And then they went through and they said, of those, of those different strata, which of those had a continued unexplained event, we never knew what it was, and which of those ultimately had that event characterized by something, whether it be a seizure disorder or something more simple and more common, such as uh, reflux. And so what were some of these more serious underlying conditions, these negative outcomes that we're worried about with the brew? What were some of the ones that popped up? You know, the first thing I looked at, what was the most common diagnosis? And the most common diagnosis was a seizure disorder of some type, which you would expect, you know, based on the definition of brew in terms of changes in tone and changes in color and changes in your respiratory breathing pattern that are resolved. That sounds like a seizure to me, but most often it's not. But when it is an underlying diagnosis, seizure was the most common. There's a lot of unfortunate diagnoses on there. Non-accidental trauma or abusive head trauma was listed there as well. And then, quite frankly, if you look at the uh, the figure in the, the article itself, there's just sort of a for lack of a better word, a hodgepodge of diagnoses. There's, you know, a single cardiac diagnosis. There are some diagnoses that have to do with, or there's a single diagnosis, I believe, of sepsis that was in there, um, as well as concern for meningitis. But that was uh, by far amongst the minority of diagnoses that were made. In, in looking at this, in this study, the kids that did have more of those serious underlying issues, what were some of the more high-risk criteria that were associated with those more serious underlying conditions. Absolutely. So the, the individual criteria actually varied by the setting from which they were discharged. So from individuals who are ultimately discharged from the emergency department, 
there were four factors that were found to be associated with a serious underlying event. And they may not be ones that you necessarily think of, or they may be depending on your clinical experience. So for example, um, in the emergency department, history of a similar event, uh, duration of the event lasting longer than one minute, an abnormal medical history, as vague as that is, but that's what it is, as well as the actual brew feature itself containing an altered sense of responsiveness were all associated with an increased risk of ultimately being diagnosed with a serious underlying event. Um, the issue, though, is that when you look at the uh, population that was ultimately discharged from the inpatient side, with the exception of the event lasting longer than one minute, the factors were different. So in this setting, um, age less than two months was actually not putting you at a greater risk, but actually was more protective against being diagnosed with the serious underlying event. Um, and similarly, actually, the duration of an event lasting longer than one minute was, did not put you at an increased risk, but actually put you at less risk. And so I think ultimately what we can step away from this is it's, it's likely not important to focus solely on which factors were associated in this study. I think ultimately what it means is um, Dr. Teeter and his group, um, along with the AEP, need to go back and look at which factors are very strongly associated and more predictive so that as clinicians, we have a little bit more of a tight set of things that we can look for when a child presents with a brew, as opposed to trying to capture every single list of event in higher risk category that it could be. And as part of the, the Cribsiders and kind of broadly in our podcast, we, we really try to talk about racial disparities and inequities in medicine. And this article did have an interesting table in table one that I, I wanted to bring up because there was what seems to be a statistically significant difference in having an explanation for the brie as opposed to not having a uh, explanation or a brewery among race where non-Hispanic black population did seem to have more likely of a probable explanation, both in the ED and in the hospital. Any thoughts on on this kind of disparity or, or, or difference? Yeah, I think the important thing to note with this finding is that, you know, there's there's probably no biologic plausibility that race or ethnicity itself would contribute to um, a difference in the event being explained or not. That doesn't make sense as a clinician. I think what we're seeing here is likely just the underlying implicit biases that are found within our healthcare system that likely modify the way that we either approach a child in terms of looking for an answer and or potentially just closing the work up and saying, I think we found the explanation and let's move on. The exact you know level of effect of that is difficult to assess from this particular study, but it's important to note. And so takeaway from this article, is there a I know they talked about negative predictive values and positive predictive values. What's your takeaway of how you approach a brew in the inpatient setting? Is this something, any take-home pearls for, for the resident whose admission tonight is on uh, a brewery? Absolutely. Brew. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think what we can walk away from this is what we typically find with guidelines that direct care for relatively rare outcomes, right? So remember, in this study, only 4% of the population was ultimately diagnosed with a serious underlying condition. And so when that occurs, what we can say is that if a child doesn't have any of the higher risk factors as outlined in the guideline, they're probably not 90% of the time going to have a diagnosis of a serious underlying event. But if you have one risk factor, even just one, you probably should stop, do a pulse check on you as well as your patient, and then figure out if there's something that you potentially are missing and or do you need to take a deeper dive into the history of the child. Excellent. And sir. So you know, going on with a little bit of the theme of talking about like some structural racism and implicit bias. This next article that, that you guys brought up by Dr. Monica Goyal was actually, I thought, very interesting because earlier today at one of the plenary sessions, uh, Dr. Chamalo also talked about structural racism in medicine and talked about COVID and its relationship as well. And does someone want to talk a little bit about this next article? 
and why it was chosen? Absolutely. So, of course, given the last year that we've had, we could not have a top 10 that does not have something about COVID. Um, and John and I looked through a lot of COVID articles. There was so much amazing research that was done. And we pulled this one out specifically because of, Chris, exactly what you mentioned. We felt like it was really important to highlight what now we know, but at the time when the authors were writing this, we were just trying to understand and grasp what they were actually talking about. So in this article by Dr. Monica Goyle and her colleagues, their specific focus was on looking at race and or ethnic and socioeconomic disparities among COVID positivity infection rates, as well as exposure for kids. And they really were just trying to figure out, are there disparities? Do they exist? And they found that they do. And again, in hindsight, we know that. But at the time when COVID was happening, we didn't have all this data. So they really helped to contribute to that amount of literature. So what they found is that for kids um, that identify as non-Hispanic Black and Hispanic children, that they had higher rates of positivity of COVID. They also found that kids who are non-Hispanic Black and Black children are more likely to be exposed to COVID. And they did something that John John and I thought was pretty cool. They did this geospatial coding where they actually mapped the DMV or the DC metro area Um, And they mapped it by looking at um, socioeconomic status. They use it as a proxy for median family income. And so by looking at median family income, they they found and they, they organized that into different intervals. And they found that for children that were living in households that had lower median family income, they were more likely to have higher positivity of COVID. And so they're extrapolating from that something, again, that we we know now in hindsight is that there was a lot of people who had jobs where social distancing wasn't an option. And, you know, not going to work and stay working from home, that wasn't an option. People had jobs where they had to be there, they had to go in. And so you had people who actually were likely to be exposed and were more likely to have higher rates of positivity. And that's what those authors found. Do you feel that there is a place for continuing research in this area with these types of studies? Or is it more trying to focus on, now that we know that this now exists, how do we find the actionable items in order to sort of get us to the next spot? Oh, that's a great question. I, I definitely feel like there's more opportunities to continue to do the research. And I think there's a few different areas you could take it. I think we're going to continue to see higher infection rates in certain populations for, for various reasons. I think we need to look at vaccination status of certain, now that we're moving on to vaccination and who is unequally vaccinated, I think we need to look at that and how is that impacting children. I think we need to look at the long-term impact of COVID. Like, we don't know what COVID, you know, a kid who's had COVID for two years, or what does Miss C mean in a kid who's had COVID for a couple of years? What does that mean? So I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to continue the research on this particular area. And I I think it's really far-reaching as to where we can go with this. And again, that underscores all of the things that you were talking about at the very beginning about the impact of structural racism and implicit bias in this area. Any other pearls you think we should take away from this article? I think we should take away the fact that we have to look for the data. I think it's important. I think it's very easy to just, you know, COVID's here. And I think unless you look for what you're really trying to find, you'll just miss it and you'll gloss over it. So I think with anything, it's important for us to actually try to tease out why are these kids in this particular area? Why are they more likely to have COVID? What is it? And it's not just you know, the fact that, oh, they have COVID, I think it's important for us to dig deeper because yes, they found that the rates are higher in these communities. Well, why are the rates higher in these communities? Are the rates higher because of housing insecurity? Are the rates higher because, you know, one of the things they found in the article was that Hispanic children, of all the children that they looked at, 
Hispanic children were more likely to have trends of increasing positivity compared to all the other children that they that they looked at. And they extrapolated that to say, well, is that because of immigration? Is that because of language barriers when they were going to the hospitals? Like, what is that? So I think it's one thing for us to look at the numbers, and it's another thing for us to dig deeper and say, what's actually happening here? Rhonda, I was just going to add one thing. I think you put it so well in our actual top 10 presentation that social distancing is a privilege. Staying at home is a privilege. And I think, you know, talking with you about this article and, and the take-home lessons is, is that doesn't, that can't hit more home right now, just looking at the data that you just talked about. Yeah. So staying on the topic of COVID, uh, let's, let's move on to a recent article published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, by Dr. Mary Beth Sun and her colleagues about multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, uh, or MIS-C. Uh, so this study looked at the effectiveness of initial therapy with IVIG plus glucocorticoids compared to just IVIG alone. I know that was you know a big question we had at the beginning when we started treating kids with MIS-C. Well, we had a lot of questions, but that was... <laughs> That was one of the big ones. So I think let's just chat through the studies. Who, who did they include in this study? Yeah, so this ultimately was a surveillance-based study utilizing a CDC surveillance protocol at 58 different hospitals. And they included children less than 20, 21 years of age that were diagnosed with MIS-C using the CDC criteria. And the purpose of this, the, the hard part that, that Rhonda just talked about, which is some of the data that we have is, is a year old, but it feels like it's 10 years old. Right. So we've been treating MISI for a long time, but this study was really one of the first and if not the largest cohorts that's based solely here in the United States with some pretty good case definitions and really looking at what are the outcomes based on treatment. So one of my favorite figures from that manuscript actually is looking at sort of how the treatment regimens changed at these institutions over time. So when we started back in, in I believe, March and April of 2020, we saw a clinical entity that looked like Kawasaki disease. And what do we do? We treat it like Kawasaki disease. So we gave IVIG. And we considered aspirin, right? And then if, as you look, as time marched on, we, we had a rapid transition from IVIG alone to, uh, to IVIG plus glucocorticoids of some type. And so this study was really the first large cohort to evaluate, does the treatment regimen that was initiated at the time the child presented to the hospital result in any significant difference in cardiac outcomes defined as either um, hypotensive shock requiring pressor support or documented decreased left ventricular uh, function on echocardiogram? So, so what did they find and, and what should we be doing right now? Yeah. So in this study, which is not without its limitations, I don't want to say that this is the study, but in a study that is actually quite good given where we're at, they found that the addition of glucocorticoids to IVIG that was administered on the initial day of hospitalization did result significantly reduced risk for ongoing cardiac dysfunction beginning at day two of hospitalization. And so this is probably some of the first legitimate evidence we have that what we're doing may work. Now, there's a lot of variables in there in terms of they also looked at, you know, whether or not we were receiving adjunctive uh, biologic therapy. And we also see a significant heterogeneity in what institutions are doing for the maybe not so straightforward cases. And so as a hospitalist, you know, we, we are often value-minded individuals. We also start to wonder, when is it time and what evidence do we need where we can start to back away from some of these therapies? So that study, this study does not identify what we can stop doing, but I think it gives us confidence that what we are doing is probably beneficial to children. And quite frankly, with Missy, that's what we need right now. I'll take a quick opportunity to do a throwback to episode number five, where we talked about Missy treatment with Dr. Tremule on August 2022, uh, 2020, where she did mention IVIG and steroids. So keep up, New England Journal of Medicine. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Great. I think, yeah, this is this is a great, uh, you know, important new disease that we're learning how to treat. Any other core updates from that one? Or should... The only thing, well, there's, there's something to add maybe, Justin. So it's important to note that a similar article came out in the same New England Journal of Medicine, and it used a more loose case definition of Miss C, included just children who also had just signs of inflammation, um, and was also an international study. So there's some strength to generalizability, but they actually found no significant difference in their outcomes with IVIG versus glucocorticoids plus IVIG. And so to my point earlier, I think I think we have a long ways to go with this. But again, it's it's not quite as clean of a population, which is why Rhonda and I ultimately decided, hey, let's go with the first article that's probably more applicable to our patient population. Hopefully more to come. So let's go, we'll go on to our next study, which is from, from Dr. Lisa Kahn and team that looked at the association between parent comfort with English um, in hospitalizations and adverse events among those hospitalized children. So can we talk a little bit about what is an adverse ho- hospital event and, and were children of parents with limited comfort with English more likely to experience these adverse events in the hospital? Yeah, definitely. So the way the authors really broke down this paper is they looked at adverse events and they broke them down into either where they were preventable or non-preventable. And they were thinking of things like, they, they don't give a ton of definition, but some things like an allergic reaction after getting a medication, right? Like we should be able to prevent that from happening. Um, one of the other things they talk about is harm due to medical care, which they really don't really describe much more than that. But again, these things that we can think of that are these preventable adverse events that we really would like to prevent from happening when our children, our patients are in the hospital. So the authors did a really great job of, of looking at two different things. One is figuring out what adverse events occurred. Um, and they had like this two, like very systematic, rigorous process that they did that. They had these clinician abstractors looking at them. They trained physicians and these independent reviewers to go through these charts and really figure out like when these adverse events occurred. And then the other thing they did was try to assess language comfort. And the language comfort of parents um, who were take, who were in the caregivers of these kids who were in the hospital. John and I, one of the things we really loved about this is we all, you know, probably all of us take care of patients who have people speak different languages other than the one that we speak. And we all have a way that we ask the question of like, how do you, what language do you prefer to speak in? Or how should I talk to you? Or blah, 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 blah. And one thing in the article that we loved is they pulled out from the ARC, um, ARC created a toolkit about literacy. And the, le- the, the question that they said that we should be asking is, what language do you feel most comfortable speaking in to your doctor or nurse? Which we thought was a really nice question, because that might be different than what language do you prefer? A lot of people are like, oh, I prefer English. But when, when a medical professional is talking to me, it might be a different um, answer. So they assess these two things, adverse events, and then also language Comfort. And what they found is that, yes, that parents who have limited comfort with English, which they called LCE throughout the article, were more likely, their children were more likely to have adverse events compared to parents who um, were actually more comfortable speaking English. You know, it's such a terrifying thought that the people who are struggling with the communications are at higher risk. And I think we all have some anecdotes that are unfortunately confirming of this conclusion. Do the authors offer any strategies on, on how to mitigate this or some ideas on on what can be done or what has been done successfully or not in kind of addressing some of these uh, challenges? Yeah, definitely. And and Justin, I also read this article with like with fear because I was like I can see it happening. We've all, like you said, we have these anecdotes of when these things could occur. So they do. They talk about some action items and some next steps. They focus a lot of them because their focus was on 
language comfort. So they focus a lot of their next steps on things like ad adopting best practices for how to identify when somebody needs language assistance. Like, how do you do that? What is the best way for you to do that? What are the questions that you're asking? They talked about having standards around interpreter use. Um, they, they note in the article, they reference a different article that was done in 2015 by um, Lyon and colleagues that said when you actually break down the number of uh, interpretations per day using an interpreter, it might be only 1.5 per day. And that's actually kind of scary. If you think of the number of interactions we actually have with families and only 1.5 of them might be being interpreted, that's definitely not enough. So they talk about your standards around interpreter use, essentially always use an interpreter. Somebody says they have limited comfort with English. They also talk about increasing access to interpreter resources. John and I were talking about this, this, this story that is a terrible story that was from years ago, um, but it's called the $71 million word. And the idea was that there was a teenager years ago who's a Cuban American, and he went to the hospital. He got like stomach pains, went to the hospital. His family took him to the hospital. And they only spoke Cuban Spanish um, for, you know, it, it was a different dialect of Spanish than what, than what the, the hospital was used to. And they kept using the term intoxicado, intoxicado. And the doctors there thought, oh, intoxicado, he's intoxicated. They didn't get an interpreter in the emergency department. They assumed he must have been intoxicated. And he's vomiting and things like that. They admit him to the ER. They admit him to the ICU. They don't do any head CT or scans or things like that. Come to find out two days later, he actually has a massive brain bleed. But because nobody used an interpreter to find out that intoxicado in Cuban Spanish actually just meant like food poisoning. It had nothing to do with he was intoxicated. They actually sued the hospital and got $71 million. So that's why they call intoxicado the $71 million word. In the article about the story, they say a hospital interpreter at the time the story was written is $35,000 salary. So compare that, right? How many hospitals just need to get more access to more interpreters because you can actually save lives? Um, and they also talked about expanding reimbursement for language services. I think those are, those are great ideas. I mean, it made sense that the whole article is just so terrifying and unsurprising, which just really makes it not sit well. But I, uh, unfortunately, we're not too surprised, but hopefully this is a good call to action of kind of some good next steps. Absolutely. Well, so I think we should move on to maybe, well, I move or go back to maybe some more core pediatric topics. So the, the next article you guys picked out was from um, Dr. Ken Owitz et al., about hyperbilirubinemia and neonates. And I really found this article fascinating because you know, I think for as long as I can remember, like when I when I worked in newborn nursery as a resident and a med student, you know, we, we, you know, we always had our Bhutani nor normograms and all these other things. And as I'm reading this, I was like, this is this is different and almost so easy. So do, does someone want to talk about this? And I, I don't know how it's described. Is it is it Delta TSB or change in TSB? I don't know. Do you want to explain a little bit? Well, Chris, uh, John and I also said Delta TSB, so we hope we're right. Although I, I don't know, Delta Delta right now is not the word I really want to use oh, these no. days. So maybe we should call it the change in TSB. Um, so I agree with you, Chris. This article like blew my mind because I love the Butani normogram. I, I actually told John just while we were doing this that I was fortunate to actually work with Vinny Butani when I was a, um, an intern. He taught me how to do an exchange transfusion on a baby who had hyperbilirubinemia. So I love his normogram. But the problem with the normogram is that the normogram only uses the postnatal age, right? If you remember it, it only has the postnatal age at the bottom and you use it to assess risk. And then what you're supposed to do is take that 
based on what the risk is, and then go to another curve and figure out, all right, well, if you're in this curve, then I should figure out whether I just send you home. Do I send you home and come you back in 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours? Or do I look at another curve and figure out what your phototherapy should be? And so we were using a lot of different curves. And what the author said is, you know, it'll be a lot better and help a lot of people out if I can have a more precise measurement to figure out when should you come back? Not only should you come back, but when should you come back? So they created these two models. One was the Delta TSB, and they rated a much more precise measurement based on how far below your, your pre-discharge bilirubin was going to be to figure out when and kind of be a predictive model as to when you're going to get above a certain threshold that you need phototherapy. They did another model called the Delta TSB Plus, which added in some additional factors. But the one they talk the most about in the article is the Delta TSB one. We need to update billytool.com. I feel like that's what I always go to. And now I'm ready for the new calculator. I'm ready for the new Brewy calculator, ready for the new Billy calculator. Justin, that's what um, John and I both said is whoever wants to take the lead on updating Billy Tool or Billy Calc, we greatly appreciate you. There you go. I'm with you, Rana, though. I love the Butani Novogram. It's going to take some getting used to to, <laughs> to change from that. It definitely is. <laughs> I need to learn how to use this because I feel like I'm going to drop this pearl at some point and be like, oh, now we use Delta TSB. And someone's going to say, how do you do that? And it's like, I'm not totally <laughs> sure yet. There's not a calculator, <laughs> but I know what exists. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. So gender disparities has been a big focus of the PHM conference this year, which I was, you know, excited to, to attend some of those sessions uh, yesterday and today. I would love to talk a little bit more about the article by Dr. Jessica Allen uh, and, and her colleagues that was published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine just last year. Um, you know, one thing I, 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 it's in the intro of the article, but I, I want to point out is that, you know, women represent 71% of pediatric residents and two thirds of active pediatricians in the United States, according to the AAMC. Um, and, you know, this study looked at um, women in PHM leadership positions. So division directors, fellowship directors, um, and, and, compared basically how many um, uh, men versus women were, were in those positions. Um, so I think, you know, are, are you able to just talk us through the results of, of what they found? Sure. So exactly what you said, um, Jess, in terms of how they set up the article is they just did a search to try to figure out who were the division directors, who were the fellowship directors, what are the various roles of the of people of women in these various fields, um, and knowing exactly what you said that about seventy percent of, in addition to seventy percent of the women that are uh, pediatric residents. They did, they did a search to see how many women are in pediatric hospital medicine. And they did that in a couple different ways. They did that by looking at who took the boards when we first had our board certification exam. They looked at who's in the section on hospital medicine. And they also did a random sample, just calling university-based PHM programs. And the average number was 70%. So we're pretty comfortable saying that there's about 70% of women in PHM. And so then they did the Google search, they um, called programs, they looked at web pages, things like that to figure out, well, who's in leadership? And they found that only 50% of women are represented as division directors. And to highlight again, what you said about the conference, like Dr. Julie Silver and her plenary today was saying this, if 70% of women are in the field, 70% should be professors, 70% should do this, but only 55% are represented as, as division directors. So there's a difference between that proportion. And it highlighted again, this idea of 
the leaky pipeline, which has been talked about so often in academic medicine, that we are now at a point where medical students, female medical students make up more than 50% of who matriculates to medical school. But that number really drops off when you get to who becomes a full professor, who becomes a dean of a medical school, who's running the chair, who's the chair of the department, that kind of thing. The other thing that John and I thought was amazing in this article was they highlighted something called the sticky floor. And everybody knows the leaky pipeline, but I'm not sure how many people know about the sticky floor. And what they meant by that is they also looked at who were the associate fellowship directors, who were the associate division directors. And there's a really great percentage of women in those fields, like upwards of 80%. And so by the sticky floor, they were saying, well, is that meaning that women get stuck at a certain level in a supportive role? They're supporting the division, the division director, they're supporting the fellowship director, but they don't actually move out. So it really highlighted this idea of the leaky pipeline and the sticky floor. Yeah, I found that part pretty interesting as well and not a term I have heard used commonly. Um, I'm actually trying to remember, did they offer any any um, recommendations or ideas for, for how to, pr- I, I mean, this is a big question, right? I mean, this could be many studies uh, in itself, but any sort of any recommendations that, that this article offered or that, um, you know, you have uh, heard through all of our great speakers at PHM this week? Uh, it's so funny you you ask about solutions because it, it this is the only brief report that John and I included in there um, in our top ten. But we thought it was such a powerful a powerful article that we had to include it. So they we say they didn't have enough time to really go extensively <laughs> into solutions. But again, I would just reference Dr. Silver's plenary from from earlier um, today in the in the PHM conference. She really highlighted that we have to look at gender equity and gender inequities from a systems perspective. That a lot of times it's the people that are most affected by the event or the incident that are the ones that are trying to fix it. So women are trying to fix gender inequity problems where it's like, hey, allies, where are you? Hey, people who actually have more privilege, where are you? And how do you address this? And so she highlighted actually in an article that she wrote along, um, Nancy Spector wrote this and other people have talked about approaching gender inequities, approaching any kind of inequity research from a systems perspective. And that includes three things. You have to have leadership accountability. You have to have resources, that's financial and human resources, and you have to have the data. And she even talked today when she did her session about that her, her chair really responds to data. And so if you have a chair that responds to data, get the data. But you really do need those three things in order to address these issues. I feel like these national conferences are such great opportunities, not only to learn some of the new clinical medicine, but very much have this inspiration of the next movement of medicine and to, to mobilize people for, for advocacy and for, for important parts of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And I, I love these uh, types of messages that go out. And I feel, I feel very inspired. We have a lot of work to do. We do. We definitely do. We're closing in on the final few articles. And the past year, with in response to the COVID, we've, I think, all seen this really soaring of pediatric behavioral health admissions. I know when I've been on service, it's it's a lot of individuals who are, who are struggling with, with mental health. And there's a great article that you both chose from Dr. Evan Dalton and group on decreasing physical restraint use on children admitted for behavioral health conditions. This is also just a great example of like what quality improvement is and can be. Um, can you talk a little bit about what strategies uh, were used in and what success they found in decreasing physical restraint use among children in the behavioral health unit? Absolutely, Justin. I think it's great you brought up how 
you know, we, we also felt that this article really was indicative and exemplary of, of the quality improvement work that hospitals can do. And I'll start by saying that it wasn't just physician-centric. So one of the reasons Rhonda and I love this article is that it was very much interprofessional, multidisciplinary. There were nurses involved. There were psychologists involved. There were um, advanced practice providers involved. And it really was a lot of people coming together to address a problem. And on the surface, you know, they, they described their goal overall was to reduce the uh, percentage of patient days that had restraints ordered um, from 2.6% of their baseline to a number less than 1%. And I think if you look at that off the cuff, you're like, does that really matter? But if you think about that, as just as you described, the, the rising rates of, of admissions for behavioral health concerns, that's a lot of, it's a lot of patients and it's a lot of individuals that are restrained likely against their will. And that's not great. And so they aim to address this using a, a multifaceted approach, targeting primarily one, the standardization of how we sort of characterize patients uh, that are at risk for having behavioral concerns and aggression towards providers and family and themselves. And then second, they focused on communication, both within sort of their medical teams, but also with the families and the patients themselves, with an emphasis on de-escalation before you have to get to the restraint process. And then the last piece that I really enjoyed, and we can't, you know, we can't necessarily describe every little aspect of, of every little piece they did, but the last big piece they did was really just um, standardize their approach to distract individuals during, during the hospitalization, remove that acute stressor while they're being cared for, and do so in a standardized fashion that incorporated you know, EMR-based tools, which are very helpful, but also just practical things. They used a stoplight system to say basically, hey, these are things that behavioral health patients can never have. There are some things in the yellow in the yellow category that patients can sometimes have. It's approved, and there are some things that every patient can have. So stop withholding things that may work with distraction as well as just making maybe the hospitalization that much easier. I thought this was a lot of fun to read, and one of the interventions that I was somewhat fascinated by. You mentioned integration into the EMR and treatment is is this bro set checklist of a violence assessment tool. And I think, Rhonda, to your point of the checklist manifesto, going back to the beginning of the episode, it just seemed like such a brilliant, concise, beautiful way to have kind of a protocolized approach. Um, Yeah, I thought it was a very beautifully done study. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I had actually, quite honestly, not heard of that checklist before reading this study. And when I started to read more into it, it's pretty neat. And it's it's simple, too. It, it looks at six different domains of behaviors that have been validated, at least in adults, to place individuals at greater risk of ultimately having aggression towards others, and um, or at least violent behaviors. And I think that, you know, it's not common, I think, for pediatricians and hospitals to walk into a room and get yelled at. But the knee-jerk reaction there is, oh, this patient's going to harm somebody. Let's make sure we have everybody involved. And if it continues, let's make sure we do something to make sure no one gets harmed. And what this is really helping is say, well, let's let's look at this in a more objective fashion. What is the likelihood based on these behaviors? And then what interventions are actually sort of indicated for that particular risk? I love that approach. It's, it's something we don't do at our institution that I wish we did. And I think it's something that can be implemented at, at other institutions, which is part of the reason why Rhonda and I love this article is it seems like a big intervention. And certainly it is to have a lot of personnel come together to form a team. But the smaller aspects of it that had a big impact based on their results, I think are feasible and can be implemented at, at any institution. Awesome. All right. So we're going to move on to Dr. Achton and et al's article. And I thought this was a really interesting one because, you know, I haven't really done a lot of um, inpatient peds in a while and especially nursery work. And I was at the Choosing Wisely event and I brought this up again, like you know, earlier, uh, but they're, they're, uh, the Choosing Wisely recommendation number five was talking about 
um, not starting IV antibiotics for well-appearing newborns, and then talked about using an EOS calculator, early onset sepsis, early onset sepsis calculator. And um, and then I read this this article, and I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. And uh, does someone want to explain a little bit about uh, what EOS is and how this what this article does in relation to discussing it? Absolutely. So early onset sepsis is sepsis, which is at least in this paper and often other places defined as a positive blood or cerebral spinal fluid culture within 72 hours of birth. The whole purpose of this paper is to basically figure out this EOS calculator, as you call it, or the early onset sepsis calculator. How well does it function in actually um, sort of catching infants that ultimately go on to have sepsis? Uh, now, to your point, with some of the Choosing Wisely campaign, is that the primary intent of that calculator was actually to reduce the use of antibiotics. It did that very well. We've had multiple studies that have shown that if you implement this calculator um, at your institution, you likely will reduce the use of antibiotics. The issue, though, is that because early onset sepsis is a rare outcome, it's difficult for any single study to really say, but does it do a good job at finding sepsis or at least finding patients that are not at low risk for sepsis? So enter into this article, which used individual patient data and then um, combined with meta-analysis techniques to say, well, how often do we see early onset sepsis and in what cases do we correctly classify them as such? And what did it, what did it show? Yeah. So what they ultimately found is that they, of thousands of patients that could have been potentially incorporated or included, they found that 234 cases of early onset sepsis were found by combining 18 separate papers. And of those, approximately two-thirds of the population actually were characterized based on the initial assessment of the early onset sepsis calculator to only have routine care. And you may think that that's great, but again, these are patients that have sepsis. They have bacteria growing in their blood or CSF. And then of the, those initial two-thirds of patients, approximately half of those patients continue to have a recommendation of just continue routine care. And so the ultimate takeaway is that while the early onset sepsis calculator has done a great job of reducing unnecessary antibiotic exposure, there is some risk if you get lazy with that initial assessment and say, all right, they're not high risk, just routine care, go back with mom, we're good to go. Um, in fact, they found that you probably need about 24 hours to observe um, a patient and that, at that point, you'll capture about 90% of those that ultimately go on to uh, have clinical illness and eventually early onset sepsis. And so it's just a different, it's a different spin on things. You know, again, it's not focused on not giving antibiotics. It's focused on, okay, but can we actually find patients that are, seps that are septic? So we can't let our guard down. We, we still got to be vigilant in watching these babies. That's right. You must be vigilant. And I think it, I think it brings up additional questions of, you know, if you're if you live in a community where it's more common to have um, home births, for instance, or if you have a community where there's a um, a, a trend towards being discharged before the 24-hour mark, what do you do? What plans do you have um, in terms of monitoring this child? What counseling do you give families? What reassurance do you have with fault from the pediatrician? Those questions aren't answered by this paper, but they are important questions that I think come from this from from these findings. Jess, you want to take us home? Yeah. yeah, believe it or not, this is our last article. Um, so, so this is an article by Dr. Francis Young um, looking at saline lock versus continuous infusion to maintain uh, peripheral IV patency. So um, 
I'll be honest, I have always been told that TKO or to keep it open, to keep open, uh, rather than saline locking, um, uh, prolongs PIVs, right? And um, our biggest fear is that that we lose an IV in, in a young kid and have to replace it during the hospitalization. Uh, but according to this article, there's not a lot of evidence for that. So I'm going to keep the last question simple. Uh, to saline lock or not, that is the question. That's a great question. And I love this article because it answers a simple question that we have all the time and no one has taken the time to actually do it in, in, in the right fashion. And they did this. They did a prospective time allocated study and they compared saline lock versus TKO. And really what they found was no difference in terms of the mean duration of patency of the peripheral IV. They found no difference in complications associated with the IV, and they found no difference overall in patient or caregiver um, satisfaction with the IV process, as well as sort of the restrictions that IVs may place on you. So to answer your question, there is no right answer, but I think from a value standpoint, to keep continuous fluids running through a child's vein when you don't need to, why bother? There's a cost associated with that. Um, you know, Detach the kid from the IV if they don't need it anymore. And no, rest assured that in general, no matter what you do, you're going to have an IV that's going to last on average two days. And if you think about, at least in pediatric hospital medicine, what the average length of stay is for our patients, that covers a lot of your patients. So maybe don't even worry about it in the first place. If you're switching from TKO to saline lock, you're probably going to be just fine. And that's why Ron and I just absolutely love this paper. It's a simple question, good methodology, and phenomenal results that have the chance to immediately impact our practice. Awesome. So we can unhook the kids, let them run around the room and yes. make sure they're ready for discharge. Let them run. Let them run. <laughs> this this totally is going to be a future topic in do. a future things we do for no episode, things we do for no yeah. reason episode. Yeah. Exactly. Um, actually, wow. Guys, we covered wow. amazing ground, fantastic timing. Uh, Tennis articles. The top 12, top 10, the top 10-ish articles. Um, this was great. Maybe as uh, kind of a brief summary, any other take-home points from either of you as far as core take-homes from the this type of session of this type of review of top articles or, or anything else, final words of wisdom to, to our audience of, of learners, whether they're students, residents, fellows, or attendings? <laughs> Josh. Sure. Sure. I have so many thoughts. You do. I know you do. <laughs> I, you know, I think in our actual uh, session, we do discuss that we've gained so much perspective from going through this process. And we've learned a lot about our field. We've learned a lot about ourselves and each other. I'm happy to say I have a new friend that I've never actually met in person. It's phenomenal. But we've we've learned that it's just like we kicked off the episode, that our field is so diverse in terms of interest and expertise that that continues. And I think that some people may consider that a weakness of pediatric hospital medicine, that we don't have a lane that we stay in. But I celebrate that we don't have a lane. I think we've seen that we can do research of all types, cover disease diseases of all types, issues of all types, and we can make an impact for patients of all types. And that to me has me really excited to be a part of this field. It has me excited to see what's going to come um, from the next five to 10 years in this field. Um, and already, I think we've seen just sort of a shift in the paradigm of what hospitals are capable of doing. And you know what? The other nice thing about it is that if you're a pur purely clinical provider, implementing the things that other investigators are finding is also a wonderful celebration. And so it's just a very neat time to be part of this field. Yeah, I would just echo and say ditto to everything John just said. It was it was such a phenomenal experience to actually go through all of this. And 
it was it was remarkable to see all of the different things that we saw. And we were actually really nervous going into it. We were like, are we going to have nine COVID articles and one article on something else? Like we just assumed that as well was going to happen. <laughs> and we were kind of prepared for it. We we're like, hey, it's the year of COVID. And therefore, that's what you're going to get in top 10. And we were pleasantly surprised that yes in addition to all the amazing research that was done on COVID and thank goodness for it being done there were so many other things that were done and we still saw the bronchiolitis articles and we still saw the febrile infant articles we still saw the stuff that is so pure to who we are and also some really cool things so it just you know I'm always have other people that are like oh you hospitalists are taking over the world and I'm like yes we are (laughs) (laughs) before we let you guys go thank you so much I want to just give you one last thing is, do you have anything to plug before we go? Anything at all? Anything to plug? Any, any, resource, any, any resources yes. to send listeners or cool things your to share? Twitter handle, website, your organization. <laughs> Favorite movie? I don't know. Ted Lasso PHM series. Oh, oh, yeah. Ted Lasso. Good one, good one. Yeah. Yes, PHM 2022 um, is super exciting. It's going to be in Lake Buena Vista. So come on down to Disney World. (laughs) That's right. Come to my part of the woods. It'll be fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, I I know your your listeners will probably come from a broad broad audience. And, And all I will say is to those of you that haven't decided and you still have the chance to choose a career in hospital medicine, it's very, very rewarding. It's not just rounding every day as you go through your core rotations, there's so much more to it. Again, thank you both for for taking the time, for sharing your expertise. We're very grateful to have gotten to get to go through the the 12 top 10 articles. Um, we'll you know put this out as quick as we can and share it with the world because I think the work that you guys have done um, deserves to have as many listeners as possible. So really appreciate all the work that you did for this and thank you for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. It was great. Yes, thank you. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get our show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, especially if you're a new listener from PHM. You can also contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Jessica Hain, our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, our executive producers, and we'd also like to give a huge thanks to the Pediatric Hospital Medicine Conference 2021 for helping uh, collaborate with our podcast, inviting us to the conference this year. We It has been an incredible experience and collaboration. Uh, check them out. Check out PHM 2022 next year in Florida. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. This has been Jessica Hain. And from now on, we're going to start counting in base 12. This has been Chris, the Chew Manchu. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>